This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Friday, January 19th. The Prime Minister is facing pressure over Canada's position in the Israel-Hamas war from within his own caucus. We'll hear from one of two Liberal MPs who are speaking out. And Conservative leader Pierre Polyev picks a fight with the mayors of Quebec's two biggest cities, calling them incompetent. What sparked this attack from Polyev, the power panel, and how it could go over with Quebec voters? There's more reaction today to Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejecting a two-state solution. It's a position he's long held, but the open defiance of his strongest ally could cause new problems. That is a truth that I'm saying to our friends, the Americans, and I've also blocked an attempt to force upon us a reality which will hurt the security of Israel. A Prime Minister in Israel must be able to say no, even to the closest of our friends, Netanyahu says he told the U.S. he will not support the establishment of a Palestinian state once the war against Hamas is over. The White House says U.S. President Joe Biden spoke by phone today with Netanyahu, and here is his spokesperson, John Kirby. The president still believes in the promise and the possibility of a two-state solution. He recognizes that's going to take a lot of hard work. It's going to take a lot of leadership there in the region, particularly on both sides of the issue. Um, and the United States uh, stands firmly committed to, to eventually seeing that outcome. We'll always uh, work with them, regardless of the differences, uh, maybe in, on, on political issues. Uh, they chose this government. This is the government that is uh, in charge of conducting warfare against Hamas. We're going to make sure that they have what they need, in addition to making sure, as I said in the opening statement, that we're doing everything we can to alleviate humanitarian suffering in Gaza. Reaction also today from Cotter. Our CBC's chief political correspondent, Rosemary Barton, spoke to the advisor to Cotter's prime minister. That country often acts as mediator between Israel and Hamas. They're calling Netanyahu's statement unacceptable. These statements are nothing uh, if, uh, obstructive to, uh, to the effort of, uh, of mediation, but it also uh, provides uh, fuel put to the fire when it comes to the narrative around uh, peace in, uh, in the region. If we are talking about a chance for peace. We're talking about a chance for peace for both Palestinians and the Israeli. That full interview with Dr. Alan Sari will be on Rosemary Barton Live this Sunday, starting at 10 Eastern on CBC News Network and CBC Gem and 11 a.m. Eastern on CBC Television. Okay, against that geopolitical backdrop, there is renewed domestic pressure on the Liberal government to reject allegations of genocide against Israel, and it's coming from inside the Liberal caucus. Former Cabinet Minister Marco Mendicino and Liberal MP Anthony Housefather have published an op-ed calling for Canada to join other G7 allies in opposing the case South Africa has brought to the internet. National Court of Justice. And Liberal MP Anthony Housefather joins me now. Mr. Housefather, it's good to speak with you. Thank you for taking the time. Good to speak with you too, David. Your government, it has decided that Canada will remain neutral on the merits of this case. Why is that unacceptable to you? Because the charge of genocide is one of the most serious things you could ever allege that a country is doing. And to claim that Israel, after being attacked by a terrorist organization whose mission is genocidal in its own charter to destroy the state of Israel and, and, and to eradicate Jewish people across the world, as they've called for on many occasions, to claim that Israel in defending itself is committing genocide is a horrific charge that is insulting not only to the state of Israel, but to all Canadians who support Israel, including in particular the vast majority of members of the Jewish community in Canada. And I think we can unequivocally, like our G7 allies, like the United States, like the UK, like Italy, like Germany, um, like France, 
we, we should completely reject this charge. It is not okay to be neutral on this. We need to make clear to the world that while we can easily criticize Israel's military uh, actions, we could say that we think that, that they're not being careful enough in protecting civilians, to claim that they're trying to eradicate the Palestinians, to commit genocide, when, when the Genocide Convention was written in the shadows of the Holocaust when six million Jews were killed, and nobody uh, you know, more than Israel understands that history, it, it, it's, it's horrifying, and I think Canada needs to take a moral stand clearly rejecting the claim. So, as you know, there was some confusion and misunderstanding and clarification in the week since Canada uh, stated its position on this. We have been trying to get a cabinet minister, a parliamentary secretary, an ambassador to come on uh, and and explain things uh, on behalf of the Canadian government with no success. Have you spoken to the Prime Minister, Minister Melanie Jolie, or other senior officials to get an explanation as to why they chose this path? So obviously those discussions would be confidential, but yes, of course, I've spoken at length to Minister Jali. I've spoken to officials in the Prime Minister's office, um, and I've made my point um, clearly, and I think convincingly, um, at least to me, that we need to take a proper stand. I think originally the Prime Minister's comments were seen, including by me, as being a rejection of South Africa's claims, but later comments, later statements that have come from a variety of officials uh, seem to indicate that we're not being clear and unequivocal, and I think we need to be. What if they don't reverse course? Uh, it, it seems like they're fairly set on, on trying to thread this needle. Uh, what, what do you do if there isn't a shift in position? There's no needle to thread. I mean, here there's no needle to thread, right? You either say unequivocally Israel is not committing genocide and, sign with our, and side with our ally Israel at a time when Israel's at war, um, which has been Canada's history. Canada's history has been under the Martin government, under the Harper government, and under the Trudeau government that we felt that Israel was being unfairly vilified and singled out at international organizations, and we chose to vote against UN resolutions repeatedly mm-hmm. that most of the world voted for because of the unfair singling out of Israel. This claim against Israel is outrageous, and we need to take a clear position, and that is my view, and I will keep re- repeating that view. Um, that, that, that we, in this case, the charge of genocide, an odious charge, a blood libel against Israel, I, I can only say that it, it, we have to speak out against it. Uh, how do you think, Mr. Housefather, and I, I appreciate your point, you know, you're, you're a Jewish MP, you've been speaking up on behalf of your community, you're a strong defender of Israel. There is this anger and protest and frustration in the streets of Canada's biggest cities right now. If the Canadian government had taken a side either way, what do you think it would have done to that dynamic? Had they sided with South Africa, what would that have done to Jews? Had they sided with Israel, what would that have done to, to Palestinians and Arabs in Canada in terms of the, how they'd be feeling uh, right now in the country? Well, I don't think that's the question. I think you do what's right. I think, I think right now you have a charge of genocide. You can criticize Israel without making the outrageous claim that Israel is committing genocide. And, and so to me, you can look at the streets in the United States where the government has rejected the claim. You can look at the streets of Germany where the government has rejected the claim. You can look at the streets of the UK where the government has rejected the claim. The streets of France where the government has rejected the claim. The streets of Italy where the government has rejected the claim. The streets of Austria where the government has rejected the claim. Why would something different happen in Canada than is happening right now? So I, what do you do, uh, just to go back to, to, to my earlier question, what do you do if they don't change course and, and how is this uh, affecting things I- internally for your caucus? Because we know there's a lot of disagreement inside your caucus that you've been, large, you've been able to be civil on to, to this point. What do you do and, and, and how does this affect things? 
Well, for the moment, all I do is I do my best to advocate for the views that I hold, um, which is very important to me. This, this issue is incredibly important to me as a Jewish Canadian. And it would be wrong for me to hide my views and wrong for me not to fiercely advocate for my views with everyone that I speak to uh, that has the ability to, you know, change course and be a bit clearer on this issue. Um, and I think we need to be clearer. Um, I think the Canadian population needs to know that this government does not believe that Israel is committing genocide. And that was the purpose of the, the op-ed. I tried to set up the arguments with my, my colleague and friend, Marco Mendicino, and the two of us will, will continue to work on this issue. Are there more people in caucus um, who, who back you on this? Uh, do you know yet? I know you're going to have your caucus retreat next week uh, uh, here in Ottawa. I, I imagine this will be a big topic of conversation. Do you have a sense of how widespread uh, your, your support on, on this is? I mean, I, again, I think it would be wrong for me to start going into what people's positions are when they haven't publicly expressed them. I, I certainly don't feel that our position is, is unique to, to Marco and I. Okay. I, I appreciate that, sir. Um, okay, so I, I want to touch on something you said in, in your earlier answers. You, you emphatically and clearly reject the allegations of genocide, but you mentioned that you can't criticize how Israel is conducting the war. Uh, we have seen the U.S. repeatedly call for extra steps to protect civilians. We have seen the U.K. Foreign Minister David Cameron say publicly he fears Israel may have broken international law in some of its actions. How do you view what, what's happened in the way Israel and the IDF has conducted things in this conflict? I would echo what the United States has said, that we would call on Israel to exercise every caution. I, I believe the IDF's intention, I believe Israel's intention is to go after military targets. We have to remember that Hamas uses civilians as human shields. But there have been a lot of people killed and, it's, it, and, 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 and they have to be as prudent as they possibly be, be, can be given the circumstances. And, and certainly, um, I would call on Israel to, you know, keep using every possible restraint and, and try their best to allow as much humanitarian aid into Gaza as possible. In terms of next steps, we opened the show with a discussion of what Prime Minister Netanyahu said this week, rejecting the idea of any kind of a Palestinian state in a post-war scenario. Uh, I, I know Canada's official position is to support a, a two-state solution. I believe you also personally support the idea of a two-state solution. What's your reaction to the position the government of Israel is laying out at this point uh, in the conflict and what it means for this conflict? Well, right now there is a wartime coalition, so I don't know that the position advanced by Prime Minister Netanyahu is coherently the government's position because you have people like Mr. Gantz in the government that I don't know would have agreed with Mr. Netanyahu. I, I think the statement yesterday was very much unhelpful. It was not helpful to Israel internationally. It was not helpful to people like me who are vociferous advocates for Israel. I believe the only way that Israel can last as a Jewish and democratic state is a two-state solution where two peoples live in peace side by side. I understand why right now that seems like a faraway goal. Um, I think that the attack by Hamas on October the 7th definitely challenged Israelis' perceptions of the situation. Um, but I, I do believe that we need strong leadership on both sides that will take that, that step. And I think the Abraham Accords, um, where Israel has been making peace one by one with different Arab states, is the way that we have to continue to proceed and the peace with, South, with Saudi Arabia would be a very important step in that regard. Anthony Housefather, uh, we always appreciate your willingness to come on and speak so candidly on tough stuff. Uh, thank you. That's Liberal MP Anthony Housefather. Thanks, David.
And we should note that we requested the Minister of Foreign Affairs or her parliamentary secretary or any other spokesperson for the government on comment on their ICJ position and the Israeli government's rejection of a two-state solution, but no one uh, was made available. Well, the humanitarian disaster in Gaza is unrelenting as fighting past the 100-day mark this week. Essential water, sanitation, and health infrastructure in Gaza are severely damaged, leaving more people exposed to deadly disease outbreaks. And now, UN agencies are warning of the growing risk of famine. The World Food Program has been on the ground, providing essentials, essential food aid in Gaza since October 7th. Samar Abdeljabber oversees operations in Gaza with the World Food Program. Samar, it's good to speak with you again. Good to speak to you, David. Thank you. Um, your organization, the World Health Organization and UNICEF, have all warned that the risk of famine in Gaza is growing. H how close are we to that point? Uh, David, I think we are very close if everyone doesn't work towards the same goal, which is averting that risk. Uh, to do so, we need to make sure that we're going with scale and consistency with the assistance that is required, and that is food-related, health-related, uh, definitely water and sanitation-related, and shelter as well. So we need to make sure that those pri priorities are met so that we can be able to say safely that we can actually avert that risk of famine. So it's not a lack of supplies that are the problem. It's a lack of access, at least on, on the food supply. I mean, what, what's the latest there on your ability to get aid at scale into Gaza? I think, David, we, we have the food now. I think the pipelines are there upstream-wise, so we have lots of food in, 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 in Jordan. And since last we talked, I think the update, we started the Jordan Corridor. Uh, that is coming via Israel uh, to Karim Shalom, but uh, also through Egypt. But then also we have the G Egyptian Corridor, and we have enough food right now to feed 2.2 million people inside Gaza if we're able to get the, 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 uh, uh, the food into the Gaza Strip. And we have to say that, uh, yes, probably last time we talked, we had uh, Camp Shalom was starting up, but still the number of uh, trucks is not really uh, enough to allow that passes through Karim Shalom or Rafah enough to really feed 2.2 million people that are in desperate need. So, so access, am I right in understanding that access is a little bit better than at the very beginning of this conflict or, or better than at the beginning of the conflict? But as a percentage of what is needed, uh, I mean, are you getting 10 percent in, 30 percent in? How, how would you quantify the level of aid versus the need? I think we're still far from where uh, uh, we should be. Um, I don't think we can say access has improved because we're still talking about the same average number of trucks, 200 trucks. Uh, but in reality, uh, uh, we need much more than that. Uh, we used to have that number actually from one crossing. Now it's separated into two crossings. So it didn't really improve much the, the flow of aid inside uh, uh, Gaza. And at the same time, the situation has evolved that there are more hard to reach areas. The north is definitely much more difficult to reach than uh, earlier in, in, in the conflict. Just in January, if I remember correctly, seven or nine uh, out of uh, seven out of 29 missions to the north has been approved and WFP we were able in the last week to get two convoys to the north of Gaza uh, but we did not manage to get even to the further north we were just uh, in, in Gaza City um, and there is a, a large uh, a number of uh, desperate people definitely in, in the north as well as other areas in the south. Right so you visited Gaza uh, about three weeks ago uh, as, as I understand it and, and we're past uh, 100 days in this conflict now and, and given the acute food shortage and the sanitation challenges that you were talking about I mean what stood out when you were there and how are people feeding themselves with, with such low levels of supply? 
You know, I'm, I'm still digesting what I saw, honestly, and, and I can go forever uh, explaining to you, but I think two th or three things really stood out for me. One, in, in one of the shelters, on the way to one of the shelters, we passed by, there was a, the, the cemetery, actually, uh, and I thought that people were digging to uh, basically bury their loved ones. And in reality, we found out when we got closer that they were digging, looking for uh, 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 roots of trees that they can uh, uh, take out and, and, and use it at, uh, as firewood would um, that was really really alarming to me or when when we went into one of the shelters and we saw the amount of desperation completely overcrowded I've never seen anything like this before uh, women queuing for three or four hours to get into uh, what we consider uh, a toilet but it, it, it's really far from being a toilet the the, the uh, sewage everywhere in the inside the camps outside in the street um, I've never seen the amount of desperation like the one I saw in, 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 on people's face, including my own staff who are in Gaza that uh, are living through this. And I think also the other thing that stood out is that you cannot have a five minutes without hearing, let's say, a, a, a fighting, a bombing taking place. So the mental health impact of all of this is, is, is enormous. The, the sanitation and sewage issues you mentioned, I mean, that's a breeding ground for disease, especially with the density uh, that's been existed before the conflict, which has only increased and certainly in southern Gaza uh, uh, during the conflict. But, but on the question of how are they eating in those situations, you're digging up tree roots uh, for firewood to keep warm, presumably, because it's winter now. I mean, how do they get the calories and the nutrition just, just to keep going each day? And, and what you mentioned is really important because if we want to really address the health issue, we need to make sure people are eating nutritious food. And they're basically uh, eating whatever they get their hands on. Uh, we were able to reach around 1.4 million people so far from the beginning of the conflict, but we need to make sure that we're reaching all of them in a consistent way. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, we were able to revive some of the bakeries. I remember when we talked last time, many of the bakeries were offline. Now we have eight in, in, in the South functioning that is producing uh, 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 some bread, around 23,000 parcels. Each parcel is around 30 loaves of bread, uh, but people eating bread alone is not enough. We have ready-to-eat food. The, the food parcel that we're, we're sending in has some nutritious uh, uh, ready-to-eat cans where they just can open it and eat it or heat it a bit. Um, so we need to basically make sure that all of this is, is sustainable. And we need to also continue advocating for the commercial sector because we need the commercial sector to bring in commodities so that we can actually enable them and work with them and, and empower the commercial sector to be able to uh, address the, 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 the main need and, and make sure that there are food systems that are working. I know um, access it continues to be a struggle and a persistent negotiation with all, all the parties involved, but we did see a deal brokered uh, earlier this week, I think it was, between Qatar and France to get in medical supplies uh, for hostages and medical supplies uh, for the needy citizens uh, in Gaza. D does that give you hope uh, that there's an openness to getting food and, and the sort of uh, items that you've outlined uh, into Gaza in, in the near future? I think I'm always hopeful. I think food is the basic necessity. So any any good initiative that we can build on, we, we are definitely uh, uh, going to support. And, and that's why I was saying that uh, uh, the Jordan Corridor earlier is, is a good example where it's it's opening put other potentials that other partners could come in and help in creating that access. I think uh, um, we believe that we need to see more positive 
political dialogue taking place so that we can, as humanitarians, piggyback on it and make sure that we're going at scale with the assistance that uh, people uh, need. Just one final question for you, Samer. Um, Israel has said that it's largely dismantled Hamas in, in northern Gaza, and it's changing its operations and focusing more uh, on the southern part of the region. How has the shift in the military operation, has that any, had any material or obvious impact on your ability to operate in there? Has it made it easier? Has it made it harder? New complications? What, what's the impact there? I I've honestly haven't seen uh, uh, like uh, militants, so we don't engage, of course. Um, but what I can tell you that what we saw going to the northern Gaza at, uh, uh, after the checkpoint in Wadi Gaza, there were thousands of people walking towards the convoy when we got the first convoy in, 10 trucks, right. and they, they were just coming from everywhere. And the moment my team engaged with them and we started talking to them and telling them there's enough food for everyone, why don't you start lining up and we will make sure this is an orderly distribution. If you look at, I'm, I'm, I can see if I can share with you some pictures. It was really amazing to see how the, all of that chaos and then immediately you saw people lining up and receiving aid. And also they trusted us because we told them we we're going to come back in, in, in a day or so. And we managed to secure the clearances to get another convoy of 10 trucks in, 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 uh, in a day. So we need to really really make sure that we're investing energy in, in reducing the anxiety because people out of desperation could actually uh, 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 take food without really, not in an orderly manner. And at the moment, these are the risks that we, uh, we are dealing with. Telecommunication that we talked about many times, we're in a blackout in the last couple of days. Uh, so that also affects the decision making on the ground for people to reach out and ask for their the support uh, within our teams. So we need to make sure that the enablers for the humanitarians to work are really addressed and access telecommunication, all of that is, 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 is part of them on the ground. Samer, it's always good to speak with you. The Samer Abdel-Jabber, who oversees operations in Gaza with the World Food Program. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, David. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev is picking social media fights with some prominent Quebec mayors. Following a report from Canada's Mortgage and Housing Corporation that showed a dip in the number of homes being built in the province last year, Polyev posted the following. Massive drop in construction in Quebec while Trudeau pays billions to incompetent mayors, Marchand and Plante, who block construction sites. Federal money for cities will be tied to the number of houses and apartments built when I am Prime Minister. That drew this response from Montreal Mayor Valérie Plante. Before calling anyone incompetent, Mr. Polyev should understand that in Quebec, federal funding for housing does not go through the cities. And Quebec City Mayor Bruno Marchand wrote, Polyev's common sense is to insult the elected representatives of, of Quebec. It's petty politics. Quebec does not deserve this contempt. While the Prime Minister says he's disappointed in Polyev's uh, d display of scorn for elected officials in Quebec. For a number of times now, he has uh, uh, shown a very condescending attitude uh, towards them and uh, towards uh, the way things uh, operate between the federal government and the province. And I think it's high time that he apologized for his behavior. Okay, so what are the politics driving this spat? We're going to discuss that with our Friday Power Panel. Nigan Sinclair is a columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press and a professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Manitoba. 
The CBC's uh, Jason Markusoff is getting connected there. We're gonna, he's going to join us from Calgary. And here with me, journalist and author Paul Wells and Susan Delacour, national columnist for the Toronto Star. Happy Friday, gang. Um, Paul, you know, when you, want to, <laughs> when, you, when you want to woo people, calling them incompetent is not necessarily the way to do it. But as it was explained to me by Jonathan Kalis, a liberal operator who was on the show last night, is that... By picking the fight with the mayors of Quebec and Montreal, you appeal to all the people around Quebec City and Montreal who may not like the mayors who are seen as too progressive, and maybe that's the play. Yeah, and what's going on? And 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 even potentially all the people in in Montreal and Quebec City who are never going to get to be mayor. Uh, he is <laughs> the, a lot of people. He is the champion of the little guy and little gal, and 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 he was telegraphing that a little bit right. to the extent he's got a poll. And also, I mean, he was in Quebec City, I, I believe, yesterday. One can never tell from social media mm-hmm. uh, at Schwa FM, which is uh, Radio X. It's the it's the uh, talk radio station in Quebec City that is the gathering. Uh, spot for all people who are likely to vote uh, Polyev. Right. So I think he was. I think he was doing a little song and dance to uh, let people know that their guy was in town. Um, uh, lousy, housing starts were lousy in Quebec City and Montreal last year, down thirty-seven percent uh, in Montreal from the year before, worst in the country. Um, the thing that he and so he's you know he's Mister Housing and and, yep. and they have. No, I, I get the issue the for week. sure. Um, uh, housing starts are down in Montreal from a historic 30-year high in 2021, and that wasn't just a COVID thing because housing starts doubled in 2019 over the previous year. So housing goes up, housing goes down. He's got a uh, a bill that would punish uh, you in a good year and uh, in a bad year, and 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 reward Before you in a good year. year. Um, by my count, if that law had been in. Uh, place for the last five years, Montreal would have been rewarded half the time and punished half the time, and so what's the point? Well, that's an interesting take on the policy. Uh, on the politics of this, though, Susan, I, I would point out, I was speaking with Louis Blouin, who's a, uh, you know, is the main guy in our, our rag can operations here in Ottawa. You know, criticism of Quebec, criticism of Quebec City, criticism of Montreal, praise for Trois-Rivières, praise for Saguenay, praise for Victoriaville, the mayors in particular, Conservatives like to run mayors in, in the rural seats in Quebec. I mean, is, is that the play here? What's going on? Uh, well, you know, I have a... First of all, Paul is too modest to mention. Uh, much of what I know about the policy on this, I do know because of Paul's His latest... Po- today, yes. yeah, yeah. Very good. Very, <laughs> and and uh, so some of the points I've, I've been thinking about this uh, reverberate in Paul's piece, too. One is, if you want to know what Pierre Polyev when he feels like he's made a mistake, watch for him doubling down. And he has mm. doubled down. He decided in the wake of that, oh, I don't just hate the mayors of Montreal and Quebec. I don't think they're incompetent. I also think Toronto and Vancouver mayors are also incompetent. So there is a little bit of a big city, I'm a small town guy, but there is also, I think he realizes it was a bit of an error. Particularly the progressive mayors, Chow and Kennedy Stewart, the right. former NDP MP, yeah. uh, former defeated mayor of, of, of Vancouver. The other thing I think it's worth noting, and I've noticed this more and more about Pierre Polyev, is he's very good at communications he controls. Mm-hmm. He's not so good when he doesn't control them. He is very quick on the trigger. He's not great at press conferences, as, as we know. He's got a, a hot temper. And I think when... Uh, his impetuousness gets the best of him. So um, I'm imagining we won't see him do this again, but for now he's doubling down because that's how you tell when he's made a mistake. Nigan, do you think this would be the last of it? I, I, I mean, wh- whatever you know, the, the point he's trying to make on housing, and maybe some of these mayors are being obstructionist on housing. That is not an uncommon thing at the municipal level, a, a, as we're seeing. 
but for the guy who wants to be prime minister potentially in under two years to be calling municipal leaders incompetent in a public forum like that, what do we make just of the tone and the decision making uh, behind that approach? No, I think your point around who he's attacking, which mayors he's attacking, is key. And uh, I want to slightly disagree with Susan. I mean, I, I think he, for his base, they think he does great in press conferences. And I think he particularly, uh, you know, prides himself on being able to call out sort of progressive people, both in his press conferences. And so, so going after progressive mayors is a pretty logical conclusion. Um, here's what I would say about this move. Uh, last summer, uh, there was a poll by Nanos, which said that, Polyev had gained almost 40% of the 18 to 29-year-old crowd support, uh, and mostly involved the other 30% that was moving away from the Liberals uh, towards the NDP were young people who were looking for failures of the Liberals for climate change, but the ones who were turning to the Conservatives was about affordability. Mm. Uh, we have seen these two mayors in Quebec City and Montreal, their policies involving progressive housing, affordable housing. These are not making impacts. People, housing developers in those cities are willing to pay fines instead of building affordable housing, which is an option in Quebec. And so young people are seeing these mayors as having their housing policies failing. So I'm not surprised at all that Polyev would call these mayors incompetent because he's really going after that youth vote. He sees there's a softness within the Liberals have gaining their final 15 or so percent of that youth vote, which carried them to elections in the past. And I think he sees that there is a large segment of conservative dis disenchanted voters with the NDP who think they'll never own a home and he can appeal to these voters in these houses. I, I think this is a this is a, a calculated play in some weird way that he thinks that he'll gain some foothold in Quebec, in urban Quebec, by going after mayors by simply talking about housing. Well, well, Jason, they've certainly had a ceiling, you know, uh, in, in Quebec that the Liberals have tried, uh, sorry, the Conservatives, excuse me, have, have tried to, to shatter, you know, unsuccessfully in the last couple of elections. Uh, what, what's your uh, assessment of, of this approach? I mean, within Quebec, um, he was, while he was, you know, criticizing the mayors of uh, Quebec City and Montreal, he was also tweeting praise for the mayors of Saguenay, Trois-Rivières, and Victoriaville, uh, areas where the Conservatives may may play better. Um, but, you know, with a story like this, um, he's got to realize that everybody's watching him. And he's the, you know, if he's the Prime Minister in waiting. And the headlines he winds up getting on this mention very little about housing, or they mention housing later on after they talk about, you know, he called somebody incompetent. He called mayors, he called elected officials incompetent. Um, you know, we're, we're not used to seeing Prime Ministers um, or predecessors in waiting, uh, saying those things. Um, Canada, you know, largely re rejects that kind of smash mouth, um, sort of smash mouth, um, you know, mood. But uh, to conservative fans, hey, now he's an all star with this sort of stuff. Um, he likes <laughs> bad, bad Friday pun music. You workshopped that all day, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Oh. oh my God. <laughs> I'll, I'll just I'll just leave now. I guess um, you know, it's uh, it, it 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 look it plays well to the base, and sometimes he's going to give stuff to the base at the detriment of uh, his at the risk of uh, losing ba losing credibility with or losing uh, ground for other people in the broader public. And uh, this might be that moment. It was really interesting to note uh, to Susan's point about his criticism. Uh, that he put out there about uh, Toronto, about Toronto and Vancouver mayors mm. um, was that he was recalling 2022 um, messages, kind of in a way of saying to Montreal and Quebec, "See, guys, 
I've been critical of other people too. I've called them boobs too in the past, so I'm not doing anything too crazy and new. Although in the past, you just called them gatekeepers. Right. Um, so I don't know if he'll, you know, there, there'll probably be cases where this rhetoric comes up in the um, in the future. Uh, he's, you know, he, he'll, he'll tone it down, pick it up, crank it up. Uh, it's uh, various audiences and uh, various moods and um, bad uh, ska band puns. Right, uh, uh, Paul. I am tempted to pivot to an analysis of the Smash Mouth uh, efforts there uh, by Jason, but but on this, it, it's. You know, is this a feature of a potential future government? Like, how would federal-provincial relations go? I mean, you disagree with the premier. Does it become like social media? Like, in a future Prime Minister Polyev, potentially, do we see this when there's disagreement with the premier of, I don't know, Nova Scotia, Saskatchewan, you know, B.C.? Yeah, so uh, on that point, federal-provincial relations never improve. Uh, I remember when everyone thought John Cretchen was just a, a, a curse on federalism, and it turns out, in retrospect, it was kind of a golden era. So, you know... Um, uh, uh, they can get worse, is, I guess, is my... Yeah. Um, let's give the guy, I think, some realistic benefit of the doubt. We can parse the detail. I spent hours reading his damn private member's bill last night, and then I remembered that governments never implement their opposition bills. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, if there's a prime minister and everyone knows that he's impatient with delays in housing starts, I suspect housing starts would go up. Uh, and, and, and the rest is sort of uh, 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 salon talk. Like, you know, I, I, don't, I can't match Jason because all of my references are to the second Miles Davis quintet. Right. So, <laughs> you know, like if everyone knows the prime minister thinks it's important, I think that would actually have an influence. Susan, what do you think? Doesn't it just replace one gatekeeper with another? That's a, 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 as long as he's been talking about this, he's saying, I'm going to remove the gatekeepers and be a gatekeeper myself. Well, it's a level of micromanagement at the municipal level yeah. that would be very difficult to execute yeah. from here in Ottawa, isn't it? Yeah, you notice that I, I don't even want to weigh in on whether this hurts him because I feel like we're living in another universe now where you can pretty much say anything and insult anyone and nobody's paying many, many political prices for it anymore. Um, you know, maybe that's a casualty of Trump or social media that's too big for a discussion on a Friday at 5.30, but um, I, I, I don't know whether this is going to hurt him. Um, and it's always been the case with Polyev since, since he's been leader. He says the things that the Harper folks used to say behind this, you know, whisper about, you know, the media, the Laurentian elites and all mm -hmm. that stuff. He says it out loud. Um, and it so far isn't hurting him. It's actually helping him. It's well, helping him. Go, go on that uh, point, Nigam. Why, why do you say that? Oh, well, I, I mean, I think that this could be uh, a source or, or evidence of, you know, out here in the West, uh, Polyev, when he turns against the uh, Quebec, Ontario, uh, calls out, uh, gets a lot of footholds and a whole lot of headlines out here in the West. And I think that there's a, uh, there may be some uh, moments perhaps that he really picks out uh, those to go after to be able to get footholds in those kinds of things I spoke about before, uh, youth vote, disenchanted youth votes, those who are feeling Western alienation. But, you know, I mean, do we all... I spent the afternoon uh, sort of analyzing the way that Quebec, the Quebec housing market works. Uh, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about the fact that Polyev's idea or his idea of trying to control housing just simply won't fly in Quebec because the federal government can't work with municipalities. They have to right. involve the provincial government. And the fact that he's just down wrong in his policy developments, that might be something that uh, 
we might want to talk about in that he's he's offering an idea that is factually incorrect, even though it may politically gain forces, and that may be his strategy overall. Yeah, Jason, just uh, as a final point on that, that that is one of the challenges here, right, that what he is proposing as a solution bumps up against jurisdiction and outside of, you know, you're in the land of the Sovereignty Act, the land of attempted sovereignty referendums, that is a dynamite political issue. Absolutely. Uh, this, I mean, while in Quebec there there's restrictions on uh, how much federal ministers can intervene with uh, with cities here, uh, they, they are they're reaching their separate deals in in uh, Calgary and Edmonton and other cities um, on housing on several other issues. Um, getting the sense that uh, Danielle Smith has has and will push back more on that. Certainly, Scott Moe is uh, pushing on that. If there's a conservative uh, prime minister, will those conservative premiers uh, be playing the same turf wars, or um, does this become a bit more uh, political and partisan? Uh, if you know, in reality, if you know, it's fine if a conservative does it, and we kind of like what they do. Right, or more brokerage, who knows. All right, I want to thank the Friday Power yeah. Panel for being here. Indigon Sinclair, Jason Markusoff, Paul Wells, and Susan Delacourt. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.